I don't know how many of you have uh, been behind the pulpit here, but uh, to my surprise this very morning, there's a heater here, so I'm feeling all right. I hope you guys are doing, uh, doing all right as well. Um, as per what uh, Joel said uh, at the start of the service, uh, a couple of my, my young ones uh, basically have just a bit of a cough, so uh, we sort of send our apologies and I'm here uh, in, their, in their stead. Um, but I was commissioned to come here this morning by our young Silas, who, who joined us here last week. Um, he, he was talking about Mr. Manning, and he said, Mr. Manning's big. And, and his reasoning, therefore, was that, that I should preach instead of Mr. Manning, because Mr. Manning is big. So <laughs> I was sent here by Silas with that charge. Um, but we, we're picking up our, our series in, in 1 Corinthians once again. Uh, Last, last Lord's Day, we, we finished chapter 3, going through verses 16 to 23. Um, and I had thought to, to go through verses 1 to 7 this morning. Um, but then, uh, perhaps in the Lord's providence, ran out of time in my, my preparation. Uh, but in hindsight, I think verses 1 to 5 is a, a better, uh, better fit and doesn't see us uh, stretching unnecessarily far. So 1 to 5, I think, will, will serve us well. And I haven't quite arrived on a, a title as yet. Perhaps I'll just leave it as it is and see what Scott comes up with. But I did have uh, cheap thrills versus God's commendation. Um, I'd also thought maybe uh, searching for Christ amongst the creation, but sort of not in a good sense, sort of looking for the, the real deal in amongst the, uh, the imitation or the, the counterfeit, but something to do with... Uh, the message basically today in a, in a sentence or two is to do with where we look for uh, the real deal, where we look for the source amongst that which seeks to imitate the source or even that which seeks to counterfeit the source. Um, and as Christians, praise be to the Lord, we, we have access to the very source uh, of all things, the source of truth, the source of goodness, the source of all creation. Uh, and so... Uh, I could end the message here by saying, let's just be those who seek God and seek him zealously, uh, and that will serve us very well. But uh, we'll read from a second, uh, from chapter 3, verse 18, just for a, a bit of context. Uh, but last week, the five or six points were, uh, being God's temple, his dwelling place, is a reality for the believer, and it ought to produce great fear and awe with attendant good works. And you'll remember that we talked about how that fear and that awe ought to cause a snowballing effect on one another. In as much as we have uh, the fear of the Lord, uh, so we will have the awe of the Lord. And those two things will play off one another and build one another up. Secondly, the wisdom of the world is fundamentally anti-God. And I suppose you could flip it around the other way as well and say the wisdom of God is fundamentally anti-worldly. Thirdly, the Lord knows all things and will bring judgment on those things and people who are worldly wise and crafty. And hence we should pursue God's wisdom in his ways. Uh, fourthly, God by his power, authority and kindness has given us all things for our good and his glory. And lastly, we have these blessings because we are Christ's and Christ is God's who is zealous for the good of his people and his own glory. So really, uh, 
in, in one or two points summarizing those, that God gives us uh, all these things, all these resources, all these people, uh, preachers, teachers, apostles, his word. He gives us these things in the world and they are uh, servants to us in order to, for our good and for his glory. And so we ought not to look to uh, the things themselves, but rather to the one whom they serve, the one whom they point us towards, to the source. And uh, just before we read our passage, uh, you'll see in my, my summary points from today that I'll give at the end of each series of verses, uh, that they each begin with the word insist. Uh, and it's perhaps important to point out that this is not insisting out of a sense of entitlement, uh, but rather out of insisting on right doctrine in accordance with God's word, which of course we want to be very insistent about. But let's read the word of the Lord from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 18, and I'll probably just read through to verse 7 of chapter 4. From verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favour of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The words of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray, uh, as I often do, that you would uh, move me out of the way and simply that you would speak to your people by your word. I do pray that what I uh, would preach and what you have uh, blessed me to study during this last week um, would be delivered well, uh, would be in accordance with your word. Uh, and uh, indeed, as Joel prayed not long ago, would produce uh, a great harvest, 30, 60, 90, 100, 120-fold. Uh, Lord, that you would glorify your name through these things. Uh, I ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I guess there are uh, some subjects which any given preacher uh, or Christian, not just preacher, um, has a a particular delight in. Uh, And that notion of, of seeking the very source of things as opposed to the fruits that come from it, as good as the fruits might be, uh, is is one of mine. 
Uh, you'll, of course, heard me in times past talk about things like uh, presuppositional apologetics, which aims to uh, dissect the arguments of any given or any given argument and look at the source, look at the foundations of what is being said, and if that foundation is sufficient for the arguments to be made from. So this message, uh, whilst not being about uh, presuppositional apologetics per se, uh, follows a, a similar kind of principle, um, and I hence am excited to preach it here, perhaps even uh, in greater excitement to what I would usually be to preach a message. Verse 1 of chapter 4, needless to say, comes off the, the back of the end of chapter 3. So if you put uh, verses 21 to 22 of chapter 3 together with it, you get something like this. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, skipping ahead a bit, all are yours, and skipping again, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul says, don't look to men, don't look to, to Paul, to Apollos, to Cephas, don't look to these, uh, these men who may well be gifted by the Lord, but look to the one whom they serve. We, speaking in, in behalf of Paul, only exist to point others to Christ. We exist as servants and stewards. The word for servants uh, might not be what you expect it to be. Often uh, the word doulos is translated as, as servants. Um, here it is a, a different word, but it basically means, similar to doulos, but means the subordinate of another. And it's often used in a, a civil sense. For example, in Acts chapter 5, uh, you can read about the captain and his officers. And the word for officers is, is the same word as is used here. So the subordinate of another, one who is uh, lesser in authority to another and is there to, to carry out the authority holder's will. And indeed, Paul himself was called by Jesus uh, to be this same word uh, when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Uh, Jesus said to him, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant, same word, and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So Jesus commissions Paul, Paul being his subordinate, to, to carry out a specific purpose. So servants and stewards, uh, the easier to pronounce word oikonomos, uh, means the, the manager of a household or of household affairs. And a relatively elongated description, which I'll shorten in a second, uh, of the word says this. A steward, a manager, a superintendent, whether freeborn or, as was usually the case, a freedman or a slave, to whom the head of the house or proprietor has entrusted the management of his affairs. The care of receipts and expenditures and the duty of dealing out the proper portion to every servant and to the children not yet of age. So probably that sentence, uh, to whom the head of the house or the proprietor has entrusted the management of his affairs. This is a steward. You've been given a resource, a, a group of people by one who is in, uh, has greater authority than you. And you are given these, these things or these people to steward them to your master's will. 
And this is how Paul says that the the people are to think of him. And I think by uh, appropriate extension of preachers, teachers, elders today. This is how uh, folks ought to think of people in those positions. Not as in themselves being particularly great, uh, but being great to the glory of the Lord only in as much as they point to the Lord and looking to the one whom they point to as opposed to looking to the person themselves. And so putting the sentiments of the the end of chapter 3 together with the start of chapter 4 with regards to apostles and preachers and teachers, we could uh, summarize it, we could paraphrase it in something like this. Don't boast in us. Don't have us as the focus. We are given for your good, his glory, and the building up of the church, sure. But consider us as subordinates of Christ. He is the focus. We are to carry out his bidding and manage the resources and people he has put in our care. This is how one should regard us. So to apply that to the modern day, especially in America, but certainly it exists within Australia and the broader West as well, there is somewhat of a celebrity culture even within the Christian church. And whilst I would never say it's wrong to admire godly men and women, we must be wary of making them the focus or attributing their gifts, talents and ministry to they themselves. But rather, and this is my point uh, for verse one, insist that your focus be on God, the one whose servants the apostles, preachers and teachers are, the one who has given them gifts to steward. Verse 2 says this, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. This might be the shortest point you ever hear me make. I could almost say it in one breath. Faithful is the word pistos, and it means trusty, faithful, a person that can be relied upon, and in a more religious sense, a person who believes in the things of God. So the point is, insist that apostles, preachers, and teachers be in character, and in doctrine, faithful. And what a person that would be, uh, to the glory of God once again, who is not only uh, in a a personality and in a character sense faithful to do uh, all that they say and and are morally good in character, but also in in a religious sense who believes in the things of God, who teaches them well. I'm reminded even of the, I think it's chapter one or chapter two of Titus in describing an elder who talks about one who knows the word of the Lord, who believes, of course I'm paraphrasing, uh, who believes these things and who can rebuke those who contradict it as well as teaching uh, positively from it. This is uh, perhaps the, the religious sense of what is thought of here. Verses 3 to 4, I'll do as a, a block. Paul says, but with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. This is a a subjective statement which reflects an objective reality. It's something which Paul himself 
uh, feels and thinks, that's the subjectivity of it, that reflects an objective reality, something that is fixed, immovable, that is factual. Subjectively, Paul doesn't care what the Corinthians or even a worldly court system think of him. He cares what the Lord thinks of him. Objectively, Paul and we ought not to care what any other aside from Christ thinks of us. And I want to say, sort of just park that thought there and and I'm sticking with it, but sort of buffet that by saying that the Lord may well uh, impart into our lives, and I think we should think of this once again, especially in the case of of elders, uh, the Lord may well give people resources, books we read, whatever, into our lives that would speak a word of rebuke, that would speak a word of correction to us. In as much as that is in line with what the scripture says, we certainly ought to care uh, what that person or what that thing thinks of us. Once again, uh, what I've just, the thought that I've parked on what I've just said are not contradictory to one another because in both instances we are looking to the source. We're looking to the God who is at the foundation of these statements. And so hence, the, the worldly means that God would use uh, to correct us, or to point us in the right direction, is really us caring about what God thinks, as opposed to the person or the resource in and of themselves. I hope that makes sense. God is the very source of truth. Why, therefore, would we put stock in what others think of us, in the judgments of others? We want to know what truth is. We want to judge with right judgment. May we reflect, may we as individuals and and as uh, the church of of Kuma and even uh, in other churches as well, may we reflect the objective reality of Paul here, which overflows into good and subjective statements such as what he has written. So how do we accomplish this heart and mindset? That's a, a good foundation, and I think it's it's here in the, the passages of Scripture. But how do we how do we put legs on that and accomplish it in the world? Well, in in a sentence, if one has their identity firmly fixed in Christ, they by default will not be swayed by the opinions of others. Their focus is on Christ. Their identity is wrapped up in him, the only one who is worthy of having our identity founded upon. You might hear people uh, say statements, or you might even have said of of other people from various times that this this person is is so wrapped up in a relationship, a, a car, their job, whatever it might be, And these things in and of themselves are are entirely unworthy of us founding our our identity upon. But Jesus, because of who he is, is entirely worthy of us founding our identity upon upon him. And so if we want to be those who, who care not for the things of the world and who are not swayed this way and that in emotion or in action, then we need to make sure our identity is firmly founded in who we are in Christ a son or a daughter of the living God. And what greater thing would there to be to have our identity founded in? If our identity, as I say, is wrapped up in a relationship, 
in a spouse, a job, a qualification, our physical ability, as opposed to a lack of physical ability, uh, perhaps in old age, then we will never know true contentment and solidity of heart. And at risk of, of laboring a point, can I once again park that there and then give you this comment? Uh, God, of course, uh, gives and extensively describes the good of uh, particularly spouses, but certainly uh, jobs and some of these other things that I've mentioned as well. But these things are, with our identity founded upon Christ, I, for instance, am to be a husband and I am to work uh, within the role that I have. And I, I do those things unto the glory of God with my identity founded upon Christ. My identity is not in the fact uh, as a fruit that I am a husband or that I am the occupation that I work in, but it is that I am in Christ, I am a son of God, and thereby I go and do those other things. So it's not inherently bad to have the conversation with people, you know, are you married, do you have any kids, what job do you do? Those are, are good enough conversations, but the reason that we do all those things ought to be fundamentally because we are in Christ. And that's the foundation, the bedrock of why we do those things. If our identity is in God, then we as sons and daughters of him, then it is fixed on a solid and immovable foundation. And we will know true contentment and solidity of heart. You might like to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This is a little secret about me, which uh, will make no difference to your life whatsoever. I am pretty bad at finding books of the Bible within the Bible. I've read the whole thing several times, but I'm bad at finding particular things. And apparently the the first school that I went to is called Trinity Christian School. It's in uh, the south of Canberra. And apparently I left in year three and a year or two later, they, they learnt a song singing through all the books of the Bible. So I blame it on the fact that I, I missed, missed that opportunity. And now I get very nervous whenever I tell people to turn somewhere. But Malachi 3 verse 6, whilst we're still thinking and, and you have your finger in Ephesians 2. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is off the back of my point that God is a fixed and immovable foundation. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 17 that we went through last week. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God is zealous for his people. What an amazing thing to have our identity founded upon someone who is so zealous for his people. Philippians 4 verses 11 to 13 Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, Paul's confidence, his identity by extension, is in Christ And therefore, he has contentment in any and every situation. 
and Ephesians 2, we'll uh, read verses 13 to 19 and then skip into verse 22. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, here's the identity bit, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are citizens of God. You are a dwelling place of God. What a phenomenal thing to have your identity in. Those in Christ are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens of the household of God. People uh, fairly readily, and I wouldn't, wouldn't rebuke them if they do so with the right motive, uh, but people fairly readily will put their, their qualifications up on the wall in their office, say, you know, have a, a master's in this, a degree in that, a diploma in whatever else it might be. Tobias, citizen of the household of God. What a thing that is to have up in your office, something like that. And not just me, but insert your name here, citizen of the household of God, son or daughter of Christ. This is where the Christian's identity is in, and this is how we can face any given situation with contentment and with absolute solidity of heart if we really wrap our heads around it. And one of the, perhaps one of the most amazing things about this whole notion is that we have this citizenship, this identity, through no action, past, present or future of our own, but through Christ in us, the hope of glory. And what security that he not only saves us, but holds us within this identity, within this salvation. Indeed, as John 6 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus speaking, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus will not lose even one of those whom the Father has given him. He holds us within this relationship, within this identity. So with such a, a firm and solid, immovable and eternal identity, it only makes sense that it would be a very small thing for Paul to be judged by the Corinthians or by any other human court. He, Paul has his identity fixed in the one who is truth. Why therefore would he care what those other parties consider or judge of him? And so the point, the third thing that we're insisting upon, 
insist your citizenship and identity be found in Christ. Then the opinions and judgments of others will have their proper place. And verse 5, the final verse. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Regarding uh, disclose the purposes of the heart, my, my stepfather, Ken is his name, uh, used to, I haven't heard him say it in a decade or more, but he used to occasionally say, uh, particularly of my mum and my, my stepsister, his daughter, would say that it'd be so useful if he could just have this, this cap that he could put on their head, whereby when this cap was on, it would subsequently display the thoughts and the motives of these, uh, these ladies on the wall. Then he would have real insight into what they were thinking and why they were thinking. Well, in a, a far larger and broader way than just a cap that could, be, could, that could be put on any given person's head, when Christ comes in final judgment, all of the books are laid bare. This is the one who has all knowledge coming in judgment with, with every secret thing, every secret motive, every secret act, every secret word spoken, and also those in public, being laid bare. You might remember the, one of the equations that I gave you from the last message. Nothing can be hid from God, plus he catches the wise in their craftiness equals a good reason to fear the Lord. But notwithstanding all that which ought to produce a, a degree of, of godly fear within us, Paul's immediate point here is actually quite positive. He says, each one will receive his commendation from God. And so building on his last point, don't be worried about the opinions and the judgments of humans and their institutions. Don't look to them for commendation or props or whatever you might, however you might describe it. But look to God. Have your focus upon him. Jesus will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Humans see the outward activities, whereas God sees the heart. All the thoughts and emotions and motives that make us do or not do what we do or think. It is the heart, in accordance with, with God, which ought to be our primary concern, our focus, and not outward actions being the very thing that led the Pharisees astray. They had hundreds of laws which governed their, their outward actions, but they missed the heart, which was the thing that God was after. First Samuel 16, 7 says, For Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on the heart. God looks on the heart. And Psalm 139, one which you're probably familiar with, just in a few spots says, You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it altogether. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I love that last thought. In the fear of the Lord and out of love for him, may our 
May our prayer match that of the psalmist, that God would try us and know our thoughts such that he would eradicate those that are sinful from us and that we would be led in the way everlasting. Each one, says Paul, will receive his commendation from God. Commendation from God. What a, what a phenomenal thought. It's such that, well, I don't know, me personally, as I consider that, I, I almost can't, it's like there's something that should be in my brain, some, some sort of software which should have been loaded into the computer system of my brain, which isn't there. Just can't compute commendation from God. And regardless of whether you can understand it better than me or not, it ought to produce a, a, at least an eyebrow raise, the fact that we would be commended by God. So to that end, let me ask you a rhetorical question. What does that do for you? The thought of hearing, the thought of being commended by God, the thought of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. What does that do for you as, as one who is a Christian? The notion of the immortal, invisible, perfect, all-powerful God commending you, commending me, ought to be mind-blowing to us. And consider this as a few thoughts that Paul has put together in the, the previous verses. Excuse me. So let no one boast in men, chapter 321. One should regard us, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries, from chapter 4, verse 1. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court, chapter 4, verse 3. It is the Lord who judges me, chapter 4, verse 4. And finally, in verse 5, do not pronounce judgment before the Lord comes. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul lays out this case that it would be bizarre and potentially even sinful to look to the standards of men. And even if it weren't sinful, if we park that to the side for a brief moment, why would one look to that which is transient, which is temporary, which is full of changing opinions based on emotions and current uh, cultural trends? Why would one look to that instead of the standards of the living God? Why look to the world for their thoughts as opposed to God, as opposed to, once again, the very source of things? Complementing that thought, we do live in some ways in an age and in, and in a culture where being encouraging or, or rather positive, the word is used, uh, is highly advocated. And I'm sure you've heard phrases such as, you got this, or you're a good person. Or, dig deep, you've got it in you. Or it's more of a, a notion than something that people say, but everyone wins a prize. It doesn't matter if you achieved something or otherwise, everyone wins a prize, everybody's special. These are all phrases or notions that will likely win you friends and that are commonplace in our world. But they are cheap and oftentimes incorrect and at the very least have the wrong focus. Whereas godly commendation, godly approbation, godly praise comes from the very source of goodness. And that's powerful, so I'm going to say it again. Godly commendation, godly approbation, godly praise 
comes from the very source of goodness. And so why on earth do we seek Facebook likes when we ought to be seeking praise to the glory of God from the very source of goodness? Why do we seek the opinions of others when we have access to the very source of truth? Why do we give heed to the judgments of others when we have access to the very source of justice? Or to describe it metaphorically, why do we swim in a bathtub when we have access to the ocean? Why do we go looking in the, uh, in the at best imitation or at worst in the counterfeit? Why do we go looking for, for these good things in amongst that when we have access to the very source of things? And I hope that you can receive that where it's needed in appropriate rebuke, but at the same time, an encouragement. We need to stop seeking from the world what can only come from God, but if you are in Christ here today, you do have access to God. So it's both a, a negative rebuke and a positive exhortation that stop seeking from the world what can only come from God, but Christian you have access to God, so go on seeking it from God. The point, insist you seek from God what can only truly come from him. Do not seek the world's imitation. Or don't seek cheap thrills when you have access to godly commendation. So, hastily moving to a conclusion. The uh, four or five things we should insist upon. Firstly, insist that your focus be on God, the one whose servants the apostles, preachers and teachers are, the one who has given them gifts to steward. Insist that apostles, preachers and teachers be in character and in doctrine faithful. Thirdly, insist your citizenship and identity be found in Christ then the opinions and judgments of others will have their proper place. And lastly, insist you seek from God what can only truly come from him. Do not seek the world's imitation. Or don't, cheap, don't seek cheap thrills when you have access to godly commendation. So once again, in a, in a sentence or two, the, the message of these verses or the message that I'm bringing out of them today has to do with not seeking from the, the imitation or from the counterfeit what can only really be found in the source. And praise be to God that as, as Christians uh, who have come here today to gather with the saints, to read the word, to pray, to worship him, as Christians who have come here today, we have access to that very source. So my great encouragement to you uh, this, this day, this week and in your life would be to pursue that source. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, that this, this statement is true, that we have access because of you to the very source of all things. Lord, without you, there is nothing. There is not just blank space, but there is literally nothing without you. It's a thought which boggles our minds to even think upon. But with you, Lord, there is everything that exists, for from you comes everything. And Lord, I pray that we would 
we would move our focus where we have focused on those things which are outward, where we have focused on the fruits rather than on the source. Lord, help us to focus, to reorient ourselves, that we would focus upon you, that we would know the very wholesome substance of things, and that we would give you great glory, great thanks, because of your Son who has, by his blood, given us access to such things. Pray that this would be to your glory and to the extension of your kingdom. Amen.